You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. You're about to go to lunch. You put $1,000 in your wallet because you need to deposit it after lunch. And you hesitate a bit because it's $1,000 in your wallet, but it's convenient and so you do it. You head to lunch with your fat wallet and you notice the restaurant is packed. The last table is yours. And after putting in your drink order, you head to the restroom. And when you return, you notice a sign that is by the hostess station. You miss the sign on your way in, and it says, Welcome Professional Pickpockets of America. And you see it, and you kind of you know, laugh and chuckle to yourself, and then your face falls. And you move your hand slowly around to your back pocket to make sure that your wallet is, is still there. And uh, ladies, you might you know, check your purse at that moment. And it's there, and so you return to your table clutching your wallet. The rest of the time that you're there, you're very aware of your wallet. The waitress takes your order, and you're clutching your wallet. You make eye contact with the guy next to you at the next table, you're clutching your wallet. People are getting up, moving about, you're clutching your wallet. And you're not about to lose $1,000 because of distraction. In that environment, you're extremely focused on one thing, protecting your money the whole way to the bank. Life demands an extreme focus on the gospel. You can't afford to take your mind off the gospel. Of course, you have responsibilities in life, things to do, people to see, places to go. But in all that, you must never lose sight of the gospel and how it affects and how it shapes all of life, whether it's pain or pleasure, it's easy to relax your attention on Christ and to become preoccupied with this life. A God-glorifying life comes through extreme focus on Christ and his benefits. And this is why God instructs you and me to set our minds on the Spirit on the things that are above, on the things of God. This is why God in, uh, in instructs you and me to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is for our benefit that God tells us very plainly to remove obstructions and distractions, to give extreme attention to Christ himself and to move ahead in life with determination to love God and others. As we focus on Christ in faith, God grants us much grace to navigate this life for his glory. So my encouragement this morning to you is this, as you look to the exalted Christ in faith, cast off the hindrance of sin and run your race well. And I say this because of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 connect Jesus sitting at the right hand of God with repentance from sin, faith in Christ, and endurance in this life. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 say again, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In faith, we look to Christ there where he is, and by his provision of grace and spirit, we lay aside every weight and sin which hinders us here, and we run the Christian race well. So let's try to understand what it means that Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand and how that connects to everyday life. The right hand of God is a figurative expression describing the position of supremacy, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion in the presence of God. We're working our way through the Apostles' Creed. We've come to the phrase, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which relates to Christ's glorification. Now think about the significance of your right hand. Think about how you use it and how glad you are to have it. If you're like 85 to 90% of the world, your right hand is your dominant hand. Now to all of you left-handed people, you're so unique. We love you for your uniqueness, but it's true, you're simply in the overwhelming minority. So right hand has come to represent prominence or dominance or the hand of greatest importance. And keep in mind that the phrase right hand of God is a figure of speech. It's anthropomorphic, meaning human characteristics are figuratively attributed to God to make a point about God. God is a spirit without physical body parts. So what does scripture mean when it says that God seated Jesus at his right hand? Well, one truth that the biblical phrase right hand communicates about God is that God is omnipotent. He possesses almighty power. But that's not exactly what it means for Christ to sit at God's right hand. See, God's Son has eternally possessed almighty power. Omnipotence is not something that the Son gained in his glorification. As it relates to the Apostles' Creed, referring to God's right hand is a biblical anthropomorphism referring to the position of supremacy, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion that God has granted to Christ. When we confess that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, we're saying that the crucified, risen, ascended Christ possesses this position of supremacy, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion because of his faithfulness and because of his merits as Savior and mediator of his people. His position confirms his worthiness. And I think Ephesians 1, 20 through 22 makes the line clear. Paul talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power, mentions Christ's resurrection, and then notes that God seated Christ at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So being 
seated at God's right hand is to possess supremacy and honor and glory and majesty and dominion over everything. Christ holds the highest position because of his accomplishments and God gave him the position because he's worthy of it. Understand then that God exalted Jesus Christ to this preeminent and praiseworthy position. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to be exalted at God's right hand for you. Now, though they are different, both his ascension and his exaltation at God's right hand are part of God glorifying his son. Peter's sermon at Pentecost champions this amazing gospel truth. The spirit was poured out and Peter preached, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter took Psalm 110 verse 1 and applied it to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. It it was The Lord who exalted Jesus, giving him lordship over everything. As Peter said, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Later in Acts 5.31, Peter and the apostles testified about Jesus saying, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. The late Reformed theologian Johannes Gerhardus Voss uh, explained, quote, Why was Christ exalted to the right hand of God in heaven? This honor was given him as a reward for his obedience, sufferings, and death according to the terms of the covenant of grace, end quote. Jesus was faithful to do everything that his father sent him to do. And so his father rewarded him for his remarkable mediatorial accomplishments and achievements. Please understand that God put Jesus above all creation because he's worthy. He's the greatest human being ever. This is why Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 say about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus possesses supremacy because he is extraordinary. Now, remember the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ is one person with two distinct but inseparable natures, a divine nature and a human nature united in his one person. Eternally equal with the Father, the divine nature of Jesus Christ has always been supreme and exalted above everything. 
He's God. In his exaltation at God's right hand, his divine nature didn't gain glory he didn't already eternally possess. However, during his humiliation on earth, his divine nature was veiled. It was shrouded in human weakness. It is now in his present exaltation at God's right hand that the fullness of his divine glory and grace are manifest there. The the fullness of his deity radiates from his humanity in open exhibition there for the honor and praise of his one person. This is why Ursinus explains that, quote, after his ascension into heaven, his Godhead then became, began to manifest itself gloriously in his human nature, end quote. That wasn't the case when he was on earth. Your sign is said about Christ's time on earth, quote, for when Christ lived on earth, his Godhead had also humbled itself, not indeed by becoming weaker, but only by veiling and not openly manifesting itself, end quote. Now, some professing Christians, they hear in Philippians 2.7 that Christ emptied himself And then they grossly abuse the verse by arguing that Christ laid aside his deity and his divine attributes in the incarnation. The truth is, God's son humbled himself, concealed his divinity and divine attributes in human humility, and emptied himself of his divine privileges, rights, and honors. He remained God, but shrouded the fullness of his glory in human weakness and humility. But now at God's right hand, the glory of his deity emanates from his humanity. His entire divine and human person is glorified at God's right hand. And this is one significant reason why we should never make images of Jesus. Because he is exalted in heaven at God's right hand. And the fullness of his divine nature, his equality with the Father, his supremacy, honor, glory, and majesty, and dominion are being revealed where? Being revealed there. And no lifeless picture here could ever help us comprehend the effulgence of his beauty and glory there. In fact, any artistic attempt to capture the glory and beauty of his person will fall horrifically short and mislead us as the second commandment warns. Jesus Christ has given us his spirit, has given us his word and his sacraments to ascend our minds in faith to focus on Christ who is in heaven. The angels are worshiping him there. Why not we join them in faith? From eternity, the Son has been exalted in glory. But now, at God's right hand, he's exalted as the crucified, risen, and ascended God-man, Savior, Mediator, and Lord. As we think about the Father exalting his Son at his right hand, we should consider that the Father rules and governs all things through his now glorified, divine, and human Son. Now, the power of attorney is a legal right or ability to make decisions on behalf of another person. 
In a similar way, Christ has been exalted to God's right hand as the royal person through whom the Father governs and rules heaven and earth. This exalted position belongs to Christ alone. The Father is governing through his exalted divine and human Son. So then Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to be exalted at God's right hand for you and for me. He's upholding the universe and he's upholding you within it by his mediatorial power and authority and dominion and supremacy and love. There's something about meeting powerful people Imagine meeting Xi Jinping. How do you prepare for a meeting like that? Imagine Vladimir Putin. You get to meet him. Imagine Pope Francis or Elon Musk. I mean, he's going to be right there and you're going to meet him. But I want you to keep in mind that though uh, all, uh, take all of the powerful people of today, take all of the powerful people, the people with all the accomplishments today and throughout history and remember they will bow before Jesus, the Lord of everything. The universe and all that is in it is subjected to Jesus Christ, the Lord, and this is to your great advantage and comfort. One significant problem in the church today is that we are often underwhelmed by Jesus. Like calling the Grand Canyon a hole in the ground. Or Mount Everest, a big rock. We think and speak about Jesus in ways that belittle his greatness, belittle his power, belittle his dominion, belittle his sovereignty, belittle his beauty, belittle his glory. Jesus is exalted at the Father's right hand and all things are subjected to him, the greatest one. Now I think Jesus made this point clear when he explained to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven, guess where else? On earth has been given to me. He possessed it. He reigns over everything. Hebrews 2, 5 makes this massive statement, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And the next verse takes Psalm 8, 4 through 6 and applies it to Jesus. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's talking about Jesus. He was made low as a man. Then God crowned him with glory and honor and God put everything in subjection under his feet. And Hebrews 2 continues, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. God's son was humbled. Now, he's exalted at God's right hand because of his faithfulness and merits. 
Now he controls everything and everything is subject to him. He always possessed supremacy and glory, but now he possesses it as the crucified, risen, ascended, and glorified God-man and mediator of the elect. Now we look around the world and we scratch our heads. Who's in control here? What's going on? We get so confused. It's true, folks, that evil still exists in the world and people are still dying. And that's why it is so important for us as a church to remember that Christ conquered sin and death and now reigns over sin and death. So we then have the promise that after he finalizes his destruction of every rule, authority, and power, and even death itself, Christ the great victor will deliver the kingdom to his father. He's waiting for his return when he consummates his kingdom delivers it to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Of course, God himself is excluded. 1 Peter 3, 22 says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, which of the world's greatest people keep planets in their place? Cause the earth to spin, change the seasons, make fruit trees yield delicacies, and keep over 8 billion hearts beating. Who? Now, maybe what we think makes a person great in this life is not very great at all in comparison to Christ. Maybe our priorities are wrong. Right? Copernicus, Newton, Einstein, Aristotle, Locke, and Heidegger, Rockefeller, Disney, and Buffett, Kahn, Churchill, and Merkel, Mozart, Elvis, and Madonna, Shakespeare, Austin, and Hemingway, Thorpe, Ali, and Jordan, all of them will bow humbly before infinitely superior greatness. Everything and everyone are subject to Christ's greatness. The entire universe and everything in it, including even the greatest people today with the greatest accomplishments, everything is subjected to Christ. And this is the great one who's defending, protecting, and preserving you in the redemption that he achieved for you. Is there any other you'd prefer to reign and rule over you? The greatness of Christ makes self-government seem absurd. His supremacy at God's right hand ought to fortify your confidence and fortify your, your comfort in him. Now, how does Jesus continue to serve and benefit you from his rightful place of honor and authority in heaven? It's important that you know the answer. From his exalted position at God's right hand, Jesus Christ continues to serve you as your prophet, priest, and king. As your prophet, Jesus continues to reveal God and his will to you by the power and education of his spirit working through the ministry of the word in your local church. It's happening right now. Ephesians 4.11 and following explains that Christ gives shepherds and teachers to the church to build it up, to unify it in the truth. 
to mature it. The hope of the salvation and sanctification of sinners is Christ's ongoing spirit-empowered prophetic ministry of the word in the church. As your priest, Jesus lives to make intercession for you, to apply the benefits of his sacrifice to you, to shepherd, comfort you through the spirit-directed shepherding ministry of his church. Hebrews 8 explains that we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a minister in the holy places. And this minister is serving you right now. Romans 8.34 says that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. As your king, Jesus builds his church to then govern, lead, guide, and protect it. He builds it with his word. He builds it with his spirit through the shepherding ministry he provides. He defends, protects, and preserves your body and soul against his and your enemies unto eternal life. He does this from his Father's right hand by his spirit. He even deploys his angels to protect you. Now, many parents, some of you will really resonate with with this, don't actually stop providing for their kids when they drop them off at college, right? I mean, no, no, though they are far away, they send money, send money, here, have some general sows on us. I enjoyed that, thanks mom and dad, but letters, care boxes. Now in a similar way, Christ is sitting at God's right hand and that doesn't mean that he's there doing nothing for you. He's ineffective, he's lazy, he's idle, he's just sitting around all the time. He's exalted for your good, exalted to continue to give you marvelous gifts from heaven through his spirit at work in you. Think about his universal supremacy, power, and dominion. From his position of glory and honor, Jesus deploys his power and his dominion to work all things for your good. That's what he's doing, to serve you. His position at God's right hand confirms for you his ability to work all things for your good. He's been given control. God's sovereignty, it's hard for some Christians to swallow. They don't actually consider it good. It unnerves them but it is good, and it is an unshakable comfort. Christ possessing supremacy and honor and glory and majesty and dominion at God's right hand ensures that whatever happens to you in this life is not without divine purpose. There's a point to suffering. There's a point to pleasure. There's a point to pain. There's a point to it all. Faith is required, brothers and sisters, to trust that God actually loves you and me, that Christ loves you and me more than anything and will indeed defend and protect and preserve you in the redemption that he graciously and powerfully achieved for you, whatever God's providence is for you, bitter or sweet. Faith, he, he's, he's, he's currently crushing every enemy for you and me, often in ways that we don't understand. He's carrying out his victory. Whatever troubles, whatever afflictions you face in this life of sorrows, your sovereign Lord is at God's right hand working 
everything for your good. And his spirit is helping you then and me in this life to set our minds on this precious truth that is a, is a true comfort for us. So you experience a nasty breakup. Your job, not going well. Your children are rebelling against you. The diagnosis, it doesn't look good. No one calls on Friday night. Uh, your body is just letting you down, disappointing you. Your pillowcase, it's wet with tears. Beloved brothers and sisters, your prophet, priest, and king is at God's right hand. And he's sustaining you by his grace through all circumstances to ensure your safety, your sanctification, your salvation. He is preeminent and will give you what you need to run your race well to the end. His promise to do it is confirmed by his position that he now holds. The greatest gift that Jesus gives you from heaven is his spirit through whom you enjoy union with God and receive all Christ's benefits. He gives you his spirit through whom he serves you. From his exalted position at God's right hand, Jesus Christ, your head, serves you by his Holy Spirit. Peter explains something significant in his Pentecost sermon, wonderful sermon. Peter preached this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ needed to ascend into heaven and receive his rightful place of glory and dominion at the Father's right hand so that he would, as your mediator, send you his Spirit. Through Christ, God sends you his spirit. Calvin clarifies, quote, Christ sent the spirit from himself and from the Father. He sent him from himself because he is eternal God. From the Father, because inasmuch as he is man, he receiveth that of the Father which he giveth us, end quote. As the greatest human being ever, Jesus gives us the spirit whom he receives from the Father. You have the Holy Spirit because your mediator, Jesus Christ, is so kind to give him to you. The exalted Christ has given, you have simply received. Now, connect that beautiful gospel truth to your life. Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on you because he cherishes you. Because he actually wants to sustain you. Uh, the, the Spirit uses God's word. I think it's accurate to say he uses the sacraments too. To increase your knowledge of God, to strengthen your faith in God to strengthen your repentance and your fight against sin and to produce in you all the, the, the Christian virtue that he desires and that he possesses as you live out your life. Christ does this for you through his spirit. Why? You belong to him. And he cares about you and he loves you deeply. He cherishes you. He lived for you, died for you, raised for you, ascended for you, and ever intercedes for you. Why? All because he loves you. 
Will the head neglect his own body? Now, if my kids want snacks at the basketball game, and I'm feeling in a generous mood, uh, I give them purchasing power by giving them a few dollars. And they go and they look at the snack table, and there you have all kinds of cheesy, crunchy things that are gross anyway. Uh, but they, they see that there, and they have it, and they give that purchasing power. The, the dollars that I gave them have effect at the, at the snack table. They, they produce something that they want. Christ gives you his spirit to get what you want. Hang with me here, though, because as believers, what you want is strength and endurance to live out your calling and responsibility for God's glory. That's what you want as a believer. And he gives by his spirit. I think one of the reasons that we grow discouraged in life is that we, we just... You know, we, don't, we just don't have the strength. We just don't have the endurance to keep fighting, to make it through these troubles and afflictions. We look at, it's just, I don't have it, right? And, and then we feel tired, and then we feel frustrated, and we feel ineffective, and we doubt the gospel. We might even doubt whether we are saved. And, and so a lot of things going on there. So let us ever remember that from his exalted position of supremacy, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion at God's right hand, Jesus sends his spirit to help us in our weakness. Whatever God calls you to do, whatever responsibilities you have in this life, Christ supplies you the strength to do it for him. Listen, we, we could all pause here and just go around and everybody share about some hard things that we're facing right now, challenges, afflictions, obstacles, sins, and so forth. And we wanna run our race well. Right? We want to run well. We, we, we want to do a good job with this. But if we're honest, we're distracted. We're weak. We're tired. We're frustrated. We're preoccupied. Problems focusing. And certain parts of our race are just really hard, really demanding and difficult. Do you have your hand on your wallet? Are you clutching your purse? Remember what I said earlier. Life demands extreme focus on the gospel. You can't afford to take your mind off the gospel. The, the demands of life are too much for you and me. And, and we must remember that the crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Christ is still serving us, still ministering to us through his means of grace. Receive his grace, brothers and sisters. Receive his spirit by faith so that you run your race well. Maybe you're really feeling the strain of the race right now. Maybe now is just a really hard leg of the race. You need to remember that your sovereign is giving you his grace and spirit. So run. Run. And I'm, I, I'm just encouraging you to look to Jesus Christ, the exalted Christ, in faith. To trust him, to depend on him, to receive his grace and spirit so that you can cast off what is weighing heavily on you. Cast off what is hindering you. Cast off the lusts of the flesh. Uh, that th those sins that originate in your heart and really run your race well for God's glory, for your joy. Here's my encouragement again. As you look to the exalted Christ in faith, cast off the hindrance of sin and run your race, race well for God's glory and your joy. Hebrews 2, 1 and 2 present it quite simply. 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's like taking off a jacket on a hot day, this, this coat, and you, you shed it. You, you, you put it off. We, we must lay aside everything that hinders us. We must lay aside every sin that hinders our walk with Christ. We must put off the old self and its practices. We must put to death the deeds of the body. We must put to death the things that are earthly in us in order to run. Christ gives you and me his spirit in order to run a race. Hebrews 1 continues, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The the race before you is the Christian life, God's law, namely the Ten Commandments, the love that Jesus himself perfectly lived and demonstrated in, in his race. That is the race course ahead of you. True love demands commitment and sacrifice and effort and endurance. The Christian life is about moving ahead in true love. It's about progressing forward toward greater godliness, greater faithfulness, greater righteousness. And it's tempting then to think endurance must somehow come from us. Right? We... we, it's tempting to give up. It's tempting to feel those, those tensions. I just don't have it. So, But if we are to finish our race, we must endure. We must keep running by the strength and provision of Christ through his spirit. Are you hearing me on that? That's important. How on earth are we going to keep running when there's so much fatigue and so many pulled muscles And like the steeplechase, so many obstacles to leap over as we keep running. Hebrews 2 gives the awesome answer, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The key to running your race well is an extreme focus on Jesus who sustains and perfects the faith that God gave you. You must look to Jesus in faith, look to Jesus in dependence. Because he originated your faith, he saved you, he's completing the work he began in you. You must consider his person, his works, his humiliation, his glorification. He suffered and was humiliated more than anything, anyone you know. He suffered most and was humiliated most. And yet, what happened then? God exalted him in the end. Why? Hebrews 2 explains the joy of supremacy, honor, glory, majesty, and dominion at God's right hand was laid out in front of him, was the prize that he was running to obtain, and with his sights set on that prize, Jesus Christ endured the cross, endured the shame, endured God's wrath to take hold and to obtain the prize. Through and after suffering, he obtained that seat of glory, honor, majesty, and dominion. His merits. Consider what Christ went through before his glorification. Consider that Christ is bringing you through affliction and suffering for your glorification with him. See the parallel? He went first. If if you're going to run with endurance enough to make it to the finish line... You must fix your attention every day on the one who was humiliated but is now elevated. How do you run the race to the end? How do you do it? You look to Christ. You look to Christ in faith. 
he is your answer. But pastor, you don't know my suffering. You don't know my story. You don't know what I carry here. Christ does. And he endured more than you could even imagine on his way to his seat. Will he not also carry you to the finish line to seat you with him in glory? Keep your hand on your wallet. You can't afford to lose focus. Run your race with extreme focus on Christ. And notice you're not looking to, well, you are looking to Christ. You're not looking where? To yourself. You're not looking to yourself. Looking to yourself is a big distraction. Look to Christ. As Belgic Confession, Article 26 explains, the greatness of Christ should not frighten us. Here's where I think we are so underwhelmed with Christ, we're not tempted very much to be frightened of him. But consider who we're talking about. Sobering the reality of Christ, the person and work of Christ. But, but don't look in a way that, that you would grow frightened at him. Belgic, the Belgic says, it's, there is no creature in heaven or on earth who loves us more than Jesus Christ. What an honor. What a comfort. His greatness is exercised for our good because he loves us. And Article 26 adds, if therefore we had to look for another intercessor, intercessor, could we find one who loves us more than he who laid down his life for us? Even while we were his enemies, if we had to look for one who has authority and power, who has more than he who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who has all authority in heaven and on earth, moreover, who will be heard more readily than God's own well-beloved Son? Dear brothers and sisters, as you look to the exalted Christ in faith, Right, cast, cast off the hindrance of sin. You don't need it. Cast it off. And run your race well. Follow in the footsteps of the greatest one.